a podcast where we trade ideas on race by way of discussing film. I'm your host, Boston. And I'm Jay. This episode, we'll be discussing Django Unchained, directed by Quentin Tarantino in 2012. Spoilers ahead, if you haven't seen Django Unchained, pause this episode and watch it. Next episode, we'll be covering The Five Heartbeats by Robert Townsend. You can drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. We are joined today by our friends Ralph and Gary. Say hello, guys. Hello. This hello, is Ralph. Uh, welcome back, folks. This is our first Tarantino movie. We thought it best to start with his most controversial one. There's been a lot of talk about this movie. We've even gotten a lot of um, diverse reactions amongst our guests who have heard that we're going to be covering this movie. Surrounding the controversy with Quentin Tarantino's liberal use of the N-word and what has been uh, coined as the cartoonishly violent depiction of slavery, as the two fellow black men in the room, we'll start with Boston. Boston, how do you feel about that? And also, what do you recollect around this conversation at the time? So I don't remember much around the conversation at the time. I went back and researched for this podcast to kind of determine what people were saying at the time. I read a lot of articles that were published in The Atlantic, and I'm going to quote one of the articles. It said, in regards to Django, the spectacle is more like pornographic violence than a denouncement. And even if the corpses are not totally innocent, the nation's tolerance for wanton mass shootings is quite low right now. And then somebody else called it slavery Scarface. Um, <laughs> That's um, good. So I, I think why can't there be a slave revenge movie? I, we, all, we obviously know that there were slave revolts. And nobody's making the accusation that Quentin Tarantino offended the antebellum South or any, any – I mean, he showed as much as he could – the complete brutality of slavery. But in the context, I don't know if anybody who's a student of history wouldn't want the opportunity to go back and try to make things different, at least for a little bit. And I think that's what Tarantino does in this. And that's why I don't I don't really have a problem or share in, in their controversies. I know there's some other stuff that they talk about with women and how women are just placeholders kind of. Um, and it really becomes a movie about a damsel in distress and that women aren't really given their voice in this movie. But at the same time, maybe that's prototypical for a patriarchal society. Right. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Gary? I tend to agree. And one thing I will say, it's interesting, the, the description from The Atlantic of it being uh, overly violent. Interesting thing, I read a book called The Half Has Never Been Told by Ed Baptiste, where he outlines how much brutal violence was involved in uh, in slavery, in particular, in the, the cultivation of cotton. And if you've ever been to any slave museum, you see the torture devices and, and all the various shackles or whatever. As crazy as it sounds, the depiction of the violence in slavery was actually toned down versus the real thing. In order to be a slaver, you had to be a killer and a torturer and very willing to do both. I mean, that's a lot of people will say that that's one of the reasons why the South has always had higher murder rates in this country is because you basically built up a culture of making life cheap. I mean, these people really would beat a slave to death, torture a slave, the stuff they did to people for running away, horrible. So the funny thing is with all the cartoonish violence and the shootings and the body stacked up, which by the way, Tarantino does in all the movies. I mean, who hasn't seen Inglorious Bastards? 
the actual the mistreatment of the slaves is probably arguably toned down from what it was in real life. I mean, they beat the hell out of people as a regular part of business. I mean, they're like the, uh, as I said, the book by Ed Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told, explained how particularly cotton growers in the Southwest traded tips on how much beating you had to give to get optimal production. You know, and one of the big takeaways he got from his research is that the beatings were so effective in getting people to pick cotton at basically an inhuman rate that until they invented a machine that could cultivate cotton in the 1920s, they were never able to meet up to antebellum cotton production because you couldn't pay somebody to work as hard as those people worked. Hmm. Yeah, and what, what you're saying here is also very similar to what Tarantino himself said by defending the film's violence, saying, hey, yeah, slavery itself is way worse, and uh, also you know, in defense of the language, saying that it was appropriate to the time, which oh, yeah. to me yeah. felt a little obvious. But I also think that my perception on the flack Tarantino was getting for the use of the N-word was primarily more from Pulp Fiction and using it a lot throughout his movies in general versus specifically with this film. Yeah, I get the impression he likes the word. I think Tarantino <laughs> likes the feel of the word. You know, he likes the way it hits. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, right? Is, you know, the people of over the years have said, oh, you know, we're going to give the N-word a funeral and we're burying it. And, you know, and like there's been prominent black activists who've encouraged people to stop using it. But fact of the matter is, is that's a word that gets used a lot in this culture. So it definitely it's interesting. You know, it's, it gives you a little bit of a a weird feeling that Quentin Tarantino likes it so much. But Quentin Tarantino is clearly a weird dude. You know, and I think that's just one of the things along apparently with like feet that Quentin Tarantino likes. Are <laughs> <laughs> you going to say, Ralph? Uh, I was going to say, arguably, this is a movie where I, I think the use of the N word makes the most sense. Like, yeah. for for Quentin Tarantino, like you could argue in Pulp Fiction, it was uh, it was over the top. You could argue in I'm trying to think of the other uh, Jackie Brown. Yeah, few few others. A lot a lot of his movies. He does obviously like the word. But if you're doing a movie set in this time period and it's specifically uh, an ex-slave getting revenge on slavers, how are you going to do this? It'd be more offensive not having it. Yeah, exactly. It's not. Yeah, In some ways. they're just not going to use the slavers. Aren't going to tone down their language. You know that would be <laughs> stupid. <laughs> you know? yeah. There's also the fact that if you've read the the uh, you know the writing projects, we're like you know during the depression back in the old days when they wanted to create economic stimulus, they would give people jobs to like do things like preserve culture. So when they went around and interviewed like the ex-slaves, they said the N word like every other word. That's right. Like, that's that was like sort of the that was the world they lived in that was like the language they used i mean and obviously you don't always have to be super authentic but it's weird it'd be weird in an r-rated movie if no one ever said a bad word right right i really enjoy uh the slave revenge story of django because this is actually something i used to write stories about when i was a kid was going back at like murdering slavers so when they made the movie for me i was particularly excited so what grade did you do that in Oh, probably like middle school into high school. Like it was yeah. like one of those things where like if the teacher in ninth grade said, write a short story, <laughs> that's what I probably wrote it about. I mean, I can remember some of the concepts. I mean, like some of it was sort of derivative, but it, but I had different ones. But yeah, it was, like, it was a good topic because I went to, uh, you know, I'm from Gary, Indiana, and I went to an all black magnet program. 
and like our teachers taught us like black history and we talked a lot about slavery and all that stuff. So it left an impression and I definitely felt like a lot of people needed to die. And on that topic, I still remember, uh, I then later went to uh, a predominantly white uh, high school. I remember the first time Thomas Jefferson came up in class and I was like, oh, Thomas Jefferson. And someone was talking about how great he was. I was like, oh, you mean the guy who raped the slaves and like <laughs> should would be locked in prison if he were alive today? And like, <laughs> people were shocked. It was like a shocking concept that Thomas Jefferson actually a horrible human being. And of course, later on in life, I learned that Thomas Jefferson thought Thomas Jefferson was a horrible human being. He wrote all kinds of stuff about the evils of slavery. He's like, this is a terrible thing I do. I'm just going to keep doing it, but it's really bad. <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's funny, Gary. I actually got a chance to visit the Whitney Museum in right out. It's about 30, 45 minutes outside of New Orleans. And it's a plantation primarily focused on children, slave children. Mm and what their lives were like. And I remember the person that was giving the tour, the tour guide, I was having a conversation with her about a lot of the things that had happened during slavery. Was she black or just She curious? was white. Okay. And this is, this is one of the things that I think is, it's really difficult to say because I said that you had to be a sociopath to be a slave owner. Like, I don't know how you could be that comfortable with that much rape and pillage and murder and not just be completely psychopathic. Well, I think it's also one of those things of like humans can kind of get used to anything. It's a triumph and a darkness simultaneously. People got used to the Holocaust. There are people who worked concentration camps. Like I'm not saying I, it's awful. Well, don't you kind of feel like an entire society sometimes can collectively go psychopathic? Well, it kind sure. Of feels, I mean, it feels to say, like it. I'm, I'm not saying like slavery like is not psychopathic. A collective illusion. But, no, no, I, no, no. I, I, I get. I'm just. I'm. I'm positing, reframing what you're saying is that I don't think that you, if you gave each of those people a psychological test, like transported them to the future and give them, modern, they probably wouldn't be actually psychopathic. But they were coming from a time period where everybody had rationalized themselves into psychopathic behavior. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. And that's what I was going to say, because Gary talks about Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson understood that what he was doing was wrong, but he that's kept. Psychopathic. Yeah, he kept and I And I'm and it was not it wasn't like people weren't saying it was wrong at the time. Right. It's I want the money. You know, I'd rather have the money well, than my conscience. Do you people think were writing abolitionist creeds. There were people <laughs> churches. There were people publishing stuff. Like the thing is, everybody knew it was wrong. I mean, you know what it's like? It's, I think it's not unlike other perversions, right? Where people just know it's wrong, but it's like, they just can't stop. Like Thomas Jefferson, like basically started raping his captive when she was about 13 and was like parading around with her. And people used to talk shit about him because they knew how dirty it was. Like people talked about Thomas Jefferson and his teenage like African slave, like slash like lover. And people knew it was, it was bad then. What's comparable to slavery? Probably like the conquest or when I think about like sort of your tolerance for violence, I'm thinking if you were some sort of sort of pre-industrial conqueror, you probably had to be on the level of dealing out brutality. Like if you were one of Alexander's Columbus. men and you like hacked people all across like the, the Near East and Europe, by the time you got to Afghanistan, you were probably pretty comfortable with sticking a knife in people. I'm sure they suffered from like post-traumatic stress or whatever, but at a certain point you have to like shut off part of your brain or you would have lost your mind, right? Well, yeah. I also feel like that's true from any group of people 
like a hundred years later looking at a group of people from like like don't you years. think uh, here's what whenever i think about this don't you think maybe in let's say 200 years people are going to look at our time period and look at stuff that we're doing and be like what were those psychos thinking like there's things that really stick out of course it's not even 200 years and we know the holocaust is wrong right, right? I think no, the, of course. Yeah, most so, of the world. So, I mean, most of the world. Yeah, anybody except for the the crazy deniers, right? Most of the world thinks the Holocaust is wrong. The re, what separates the Holocaust from slavery and the acknowledgement that slavery is wrong, or people acknowledge that slavery is wrong. I think people deny the brutality, and I think mm. I th so, yeah. So yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think it's just because the Holocaust happened to white people, and it's hard. I think. Because well, it's also, also because the Holocaust wasn't profitable, but, but ultimately, but and the Holocaust wasn't on American soil. So, like, we're kind of speaking to the experience of Americans. So, it's easy to say how horrible the Holocaust is without feeling a national responsibility. And too. also, photos, like photos and videos, make all the difference. I mean, just yeah. just to to touch on the George Floyd. Thing, it's a good right? point. Like, yeah, you know, right. when you can see huh. it, it's real. Like, if we had videos of people beating the hell out of people in Texas cotton fields. It right. would be a totally different thing. Like, you know, like if there if someone had a moving picture of like the, the count at the end of the day, because the way it worked in brief, right, is you showed up at the end of the day, they weighed out your bag. And if you were short, they beat the hell out of you. That was the rule. And it was a moving target. So like if they if they figured out you could pick 100 pounds of cotton in a day, that was the minimum you could come up with. They didn't give a shit if you were sick, tired, sore. It better be a hundred pounds in that bag, or you're getting it beaten. Like if there was videos of somebody like weighing it and then taking out their whip and doling out a brutal beating, people would have a different attitude about it. I mean, part of it, like like uh, Boston said, is the fact that it happened to black people. But there's also the fact that there's literally pictures of the people in the pinstripe pajamas, you know, like coming out looking like skeletons. In the civil rights era, like wasn't it huge when the North saw, I think it was video of black people being hosed down? That's true. That was part of what got the, the civil rights movement a lot more traction. Right. But the only thing that I would say, Gary, in the pushback a little bit, is there were pictures of black men being lynched and nobody did anything. Like it was like, if and if you talk about the Red Scare or that that period in the 1920s when African Americans come home from World War One, and they're literally being lynched in their army uniforms, like people did do stuff. All of that stuff is what pushed us f towards the uh, like it was bit by bit. That's the problem. Like it it takes a lot of black suffering generally to move the needle, but that's like that stuff did work because now think about this, right? People don't. A lot of people don't think about it, but if it hadn't been for the mistreatment of the soldiers coming back from World War One, you probably wouldn't have had, I bet a lot of people don't realize this, but when they tried to recruit black people at the beginning of World War II, a lot of people said no. So they right. had to go to like the black papers and stuff and they started the double V campaign, you know, talking about we're going to have victory overseas and victory at home. Because initially black people said no, because people, they, you know, they were coming for people's sons and the, and the father was going, no, I came back from Europe after stabbing Huns and, and getting shot at. And they treated me just like a dog. So, you know what? I'm not sending my boy to do the same thing. And they were like, but we would like your boy to come because we need some extra, we need the manpower. Because that's the other thing. The United States at a certain point looks around and goes, are we really just going to let 10% of the manpower sit this war out? And the answer is always no. There's never been a time where you didn't want that extra 10% of, uh, of black manpower involved in your war effort.
back to my point, I think that, for instance, to be a pimp, you have to be a particular kind of person, right? Absolutely. To be a slaveholder, you have to be a particular kind of person. Yeah. There were people even in the South who knew it was wrong. And I think that there needs to be like, there has to be like, I don't know, something completely wrong with you. Like, I don't know how the horror of slavery has not been still to this day, a central issue in the American politique. I just don't, I don't understand it. But you know why? Because, well, there's a couple of things. One, you don't actually have to confront it. So that, why would you, right? If you think about it, part of the reason why we're able to be so frank about Nazism or whatever has happened someplace else, it's easy to talk mm -hmm. about other people's mess ups. Second thing is, if Germany hadn't lost the war, they probably wouldn't be talking about it either, right? Like if, even if it'd been a draw, right? Let's say it ended kind of like Vietnam where, you know, all sides sort of go back to their, their neutral corners and Germany's over there being Germany and we're over here being the US. I don't think there'd be a whole lot of Holocaust memorials up in Germany right now. No, if they managed to retain Poland, like all of Western uh, Europe was now just Germany land. Yeah. And they like, yeah, it was a draw. Yeah, but it was like basically they were like, we kept our Levin's room and, and the Americans went home. So we're going to call it a draw. I don't think there'd be a whole lot of like, you know, rending of garments and apologies. They'd be like, yeah, you know what? Some bad things happened, but we're ready to move on. What was the percentage of white people in the South during slavery that actively participated on plantations? There's two numbers, right? Okay. The percentage of white people that actually owned slaves was probably 20 to 30 percent. There was a small number, maybe even less than that. I think it was, I thought, it, I thought it was even less than maybe 20. even less than that. I could be completely way off, but I'd probably say the per percentage of white people that participated in slavery was probably pretty high. It's probably like 80 percent because the, the slave economy was the economy. They were right. If you're in a cotton town, just think of it this way. It's like I'm from a steel town, right? From Gary, Indiana. Not everybody works at the mill, but if you work at J.C. Penney and you count on customers from the mill to come in and buy stuff, you're kind of in the steel business, too. You know, so yeah. if I if I run no, a shipping business in Louisiana, am I in the slave business? Maybe I don't own any slaves. Maybe I've never held a whip, but I'm counting on that cotton to hit the uh, the dock so that I can keep my shipping going. And the same thing with people who run banks, people who run insurance companies. Basically, everybody's hands get dirty when something's that big. I would probably say the slave economy was the primary southern export at that particular time. The, the, the southern export was so high that Britain was willing to come in on the side of the South and the, during the Civil War to stop the North from the blockade to prevent Southern cotton from getting out of the United States. And I think so. at the very least, everyone agrees that it was a very important business. The argument of how many people actually worked on a plantation or owned slaves really hides the real story. It's how many people had a material interest in keeping that going. And the answer is a lot of people, probably most right. people to talk about Django. I saw it in theaters and I didn't love it the first time I saw it in theaters and I haven't really watched it since last week when we rewatched it. And uh, this time I really liked it. And I feel like I understood a lot more of what Tarantino was trying to do and what the messaging of the movie is. And I kind of want to go all the way back when we were talking about why there was outrage about this movie. Why can Indiana Jones kill 50 Nazis brutally, punch them to death with his fists and shoot them? And that's a family 
entertainment movie, but Django can't kill a bunch of slave owners. And I think Tarantino even said this in the interview, is it forces people, even if it's a genre movie, it's an action-adventure movie, it's forcing people to confront their history in a way that we haven't done with slavery. There, there are no... There are no action adventure films about like uh, where where slavers are the bad guys, you know, even though they are great movie bad guys. It's not there's nothing funny about it. And like it shouldn't be an entertaining thing. Like Gary was saying when he was a kid, you know, he would write these stories. It's a wish fulfillment about you wish that you could be Indiana Jones, go back in time and kill Nazis. Now we finally have a movie where you, you know, kids are going to be wishing they could be Django and go back and kill a whole house full of slave owners. I think ultimately it's a movie that needed to happen. And I kind of feel like a lot of the outrage is just people being uncomfortable with the subject matter. Like we just want to forget that it happened entirely and we don't even want movies about it. And uh, I'm against that. So that's, uh, that's my take. So I think Django after rewatching it next week might be in my top four. I really liked it this time around. What's your favorite line from Django? Because like most Quentin Tarantino movies, I feel like leave me with a line that I find myself just like randomly repeating. I can't think of what my Django line is. Like I, I like the Alexander Dumont discussion with Schultz and Candy. Yeah. And I love between Django and Schultz when they're talking about the word positive that Django doesn't understand. And then he kills him. He's like, I'm he's I'm positive yes. he's dead. Like that. That back and forth is so good. Uh, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry, my friend. I couldn't resist is a good one. Want to see something? Or what does he say? No, I might be saying, I'm paraphrasing, but when Django kills the one guy who was whipping that girl and he says to the other slaves, he says, uh, he says, hey, want to see something? And just blows the dude away. That's a great, that was a badass scene. Oh, I love it when Django goes to uh, the two black women in the house at the very end say goodbye to miss so pauline funny. or whatever her name is they're like goodbye miss pauline and then she like <laughs> flies. cartoonishly flies like just you're out of this fucking movie now it's amazing i don't even know how many times a year i find myself thinking now normally you'd be deader than fried chicken but right now i'm going through a transitional period in my life like, I think yeah. that all the time and then and then the other one like every time i see like a new car stereo i think of the line for jackie brown who goes you can play it as loud as you want, but don't touch my levels. Like, I just, like you know, like those two things, like just have been stuck in my head for like twenty years, respectively. Sometimes white people reach another level of racism that's in that I'm in awe of. Like when we had the Tales from the Hood episode, and remember the guy that was running for senator or whatever called the dolls nigglets. That's an exceptionally racist thing to say. And it, there's something about it. Like, that's really, I'm in awe of their racism. But there was the part in the movie when DiCaprio's character says, sold to the man with the exceptional beard and the unexceptional nigger. And I was like, that's just, that's yeah, just racism. Brutal. That's just next, like, you have to admire exceptional racism. You know, like, sometimes you got to yeah. sit back and just be in awe of the racism. Well, all of, like... The tension is just extra thick. The sensibilities that Tarantino has really worked to the, this narrative's advantage. The tension is that much more. I mean, it's also, I think, why uh, Inglorious Bastards was 
uh, so strong as well. Whereas in, I still love this movie, but the subtlety of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood leaves something to be desired compared to these two movies in the, you know, history revisionist trilogy that he's done. Although, you know, the violence is often very cartoonish, but, you know, the dog scene is very brutal. To me, it doesn't read as cartoonish at all. It's just, it's kind of like you need to look at this in a way to see how bad it was and to see what people are still repairing themselves from. And that famously was true. Like, they had attack dogs that they used to hunt down runaways. And I watched this movie sometime during the pandemic for the second time and felt the same way you did, Ralph. Like, the first time I saw it, I actually didn't see this one in theaters for some reason, but when I did see it for the first time, I thought just the pacing was really off. Like, Tarantino wasn't doing as long as movies up until I think this one was considerably longer than his others um, prior to I feel it. like this and Inglorious Bastards is when he really started to get, like, long. Although, honestly, in movie history it's right around the time when all movies started to get long. Very true. It was after Lord of the Rings, it was like, oh, people will pay money and sit down for four hours. Yeah. All right, leave those leave those deleted scenes in. You Lord know? of the Rings is a game changer yeah. for that. I did want to speak to something that Ralph had said, and I think that, Jay, something that you had kind of seconded about the murders being Americans and, and Americans in general having a tough right. time. But ta Coates was pretty critical of the movie, too, in The Atlantic. I should say this. He was pretty critical of the trailer i don't think he said that he wouldn't see the movie based on the trailer i wonder if he changed his mind since but in some of the books that i've read they talk about how black people tend to be more sympathetic to white people than vice versa and i wonder because of the stigma racism you see this kind of played out in south africa and you see this even played out recently there was the white woman who uh the white cop who had claimed that she had gone into the wrong apartment she thought the apartment was hers, and she shot the black guy sitting in his house and at her sentencing the family came around and hugged her and cried and the judge who was black got off the stand and said she was going to pray for her and they handed her a bible and you couldn't help think that if the situations were reverse there would not be that much sympathy and i think in a way some of the criticism this is me and and i'm sure Ta-Nehisi Coates would tear me a new one, but I, I do think that black people more or less identify with their victimizers, and that's also what made it tough to watch. If they were killing Nazis, if they were killing, if they, this had been a movie that focused on Brazilian slavery or Jamaican slavery, or maybe, and they were killing the British, maybe it wouldn't be so controversial in the way that Inglorious Bastards were, were, wasn't controversial. Wait, I'm, I, I, I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. You're saying that some black people may have had a difficult time watching this because it prevents them from sympathizing with white people? No, because they do sympathize with the white people. Like, like they thought the violence towards like the slave owners was way over the top. This is just my assumptions. Like, right. I think that George Floyd actually was a really big exception to this, but like black people tend to be very forgiving and particularly of white people. I feel like sometimes they're more forgiving of white people than they are of their own people. And I think that is kind of seeing white people being murdered like that for some black people might've been like, well, I don't really want to see this. This isn't helpful, even though it should 
be like kind of like Gary said, this is this is the revenge. This is a fantasy that I've been thinking about because the brutality of this was so egregious that I would like to see these people get their comeuppance. One thing just to talk about Tarantino as a filmmaker, the interesting thing that all Tarantino movies do is uh, and it's it's brilliant how he does it. He knows when to make a murder scene brutal to get your sympathy. Like he knows that when to make violence uncomfortable to get your sympathy. And then he explodes and like, oh, no, now this is the fun killing part. So when Tarantino is showing violence against the heroes and the sympathetic characters, it's done in ways that are extremely uncomfortable. And then later on, he the, the, the violence makes a shift and it's like, no, this is a catharsis. It's uh, you're supposed to be happy at this point. It's like then and that's when it switches to like Indiana Jones and it's like, you know, Django's well, running around and shooting people and the blood is spraying and it's uh, beautiful. That and, whole uh, bit where that dude's knee gets shot oh, maybe God. like 20 times because he's just in yes. front of the door is the funniest part of the movie. Yes. <laughs> it's like shot. And he's like, even saying things. He's like, he's oh, like God, God damn, it, damn it. You did it again. Yeah, oh, he even says at one point, he's like, you did it again. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this might be jumping ahead, but the uh, I don't know what those guys were supposed to be because the KKK didn't exist yet. That's I think they were just generalized night riding posse. You know, that's another really important part of like sort of the antebellum South is that as part of like sort of mutual self-defense, you always had to be like available to, to join a posse to put down a revolt or, or hunt mm. down or run away. So that like, I don't know why they would have wore the mask because they would have been perfectly proud right. to do it. That's the other thing. It's like these people were comfortable with their uh, with the violence, which you know I was. But it was like it was a good laugh. But I think in real life, I think they just would have rode out. I don't think they would have needed the mask at all. Oh yeah, no. I I think Tarantino was like, all right, well we ha have to have this scene where this happens. They gotta wear hoods. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not. He's not going. And it's a it's a big distinction with Django. Django is not supposed to be historically accurate. He just was like, we have to we have to do this because it's a funny bit because you have that whole amazingly hilarious dialogue where the KKK guys are arguing amongst themselves about how the holes are stupid. And the one guy rides off. He's like, my wife spent all morning cutting the holes out of these bags for you dumbasses. I'm out of here. You know, like it's funny. The, the other thing that's strange about the movie, and I don't know how much flack Tarantino maybe should have gotten for it or just a really egregious historical inaccuracy. And I know this is a movie isn't meant to be historically inaccurate, but the fugitive slave laws pass in 1850. And essentially what the fugitive slave laws do is they make it lawful for slave owners to now go to the Northern States to recapture slaves. Prior to that, if you were able to touch down in a Northern state, you were free, at least, you know, in theory. They needed a law enforcement agency to be able to bring back the slaves. So they formed the United States Marshals. That's the origin of the United States Marshals. Now, in the movie, they are going to the Marshals in these towns as if the Marshals existed just arbitrarily. But at this time, the United States Marshals' only job or primary job was retrieving runaway slaves. Well, I actually have to correct you that the U.S. Marshal Service is actually even older than that. George Washington first established the U.S. Marshals. Oh, I thought that it was established after the Fugitive Slave Act. No, they're very proud of the fact that they're the first 
federal law enforcement agency, although the first thing they did wasn't even so much like law enforcement. It was like literally like bringing people into court because that's that's still the number one thing that the U.S. Marshals do is like they bring people to court. You know what actually is a historical inaccuracy? The yeah. dynamite. Dynamite was not invented until after uh, like after the Civil War. <laughs> that's, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, because that's great. Because that was just for the scene of the movie. I really wish dynamite was invented earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They had other experiences, right but they were super unstable. That's why, like, Nobel made so much money that he was able to, like, you know, give out all that money with the prizes because he finally made an explosive that was, like, less likely to kill you before you could blow something up. Anyway, but the U.S. Marshal Service, like, uh, what you're saying about, like, the, the, the Fugitive Slave Act thing is super important, which is, like, part of it is, like, understanding that when they, like, rode away in the movie, I was like, they're nowhere near safety. They're in, they're deep in Mississippi after murdering like a county full of white men. Like they're not gonna make it home. <laughs> they don't even have a home. I know. I was like, you're never gonna make it to freedom. Like they like the whole state of Mississippi would have been out after them. Oh yeah, especially after that. I also liked how the ending just caking on the badassery. It's not just a happy ending. It's like a happy ending plus. It's like every bad guy dies screaming. He literally has a dancing horse at the end, and then they do like they do a flashback of uh, uh, him and Schmidt telling him that he's going to be the fastest gun in the way. It's just like great. Actually, that part I think is weirdly edited, but I understand what they were trying to do. They were trying to do almost like a Rocky Balboa, you know, having a flashback to Mickey saying Mickey loves you, Rock, you know, like sort of thing. Like they had to end it with a little bit of a flashback of him with his mentor. But yeah, the immediate aftermath of that would be horrible. <laughs> talking about like a how many day slog to freedom after that. But these things don't matter in a uh, fantasy revenge movie. I would have made the assumption that they would have ran into Indian territory someplace. I don't know how else they actually get to freedom. So, so maybe go west might be your best bet. Yeah. And Django was loosely based on the first black deputy bass reeves i read that was three quarters of a book about bass reeves if anyone wants to ask me questions about it <laughs> yeah. how close is it to the story of django not very oh. not very but what's cool about bass reeves is that uh as boston was saying he was the first uh deputy u.s marshal and of course because of the time where it happened this was like after the civil war he was not allowed to arrest white men so he, uh, what he did is he mostly went into the, uh, what within the Indian territories, which would now be like Arkansas, Oklahoma, and he arrested Indian fugitives, mixed race fugitives, black fugitives, but he was not allowed to arrest white men. And Bass Reeves uh, was illiterate, but had a really good memory. And he, I think there, like his record of like, on-the-job kills because he actually tried to arrest the people and bring them to court and he would if he could but i think he he was like supposed to have killed somewhere like 13 14 people on the job hmm. what i tell you what movie was based on the stories of bass reeves apparently it was like rooster cogburn with uh, john wayne it was supposedly based on bass reeves life and then there was another one made pretty recently with uh i can't remember his name now he's like a he's a big actor he's like but he played like a u.s marshal in the Indian territories. And apparently that was also based on Bass Reeves' life. I'm still waiting for someone to make an actual Bass Reeves movie because I will go see that. No, that sounds awesome. He had a big mustache. He, like, There's pictures of him because, you know, he he was a U.S. Marshal for a long time. Like I said, it started, like he was born into slavery and then he worked as a U.S. Marshal, like I think until like the early 1900s. You know, he's just out there tracking guys across the territories and hauling them in the court. Unless you didn't want to go quietly, then Bass Reeves would shoot you. 
It's such a crazy time period to think about that with like uh, the wanted dead or alive thing where you could literally just, you know, shoot a guy and bring his body in and uh, yes. get a bounty. That, that, but see, that's the part that is like is sort of interesting. Like the movie, that was where Tarantino took some artistic license. Like you actually had to try and arrest the guy. So one of the reasons why we know about like Bass Reeves like cases is like he had to go and testify in court as to like why people were dead sometimes you, you couldn't just like murder dudes you had to uh, try and uh affect a, an arrest even then right yeah i wonder that that's a fascinating concept the dead or alive concept because that's essentially what we see in policing now like with the whole george floyd thing yeah you know bring him in dead or alive he doesn't matter michael brown Tamir Rice, all these people that the police decided that they were going to be the executioner on prior to bringing them back. To go with the thing about the bounty hunting, because you, you brought up a really good point when you said the thing about the Fugitive Slave Act. There were slave catchers. That was people's whole job was going in and bringing people back south. And as we know from like, you know, the 12 years of slave, as a slave, they weren't that picky. Like You didn't actually have to be the person they were looking for. They would just throw you in a bag too. And like, what, like, think about the culture we built up, all the people who you know, built up these calluses of just mistreating people and dragging people away from, you know, e like either actual runaway slaves or innocent, like free black people. They were perfectly willing to kidnap and sell in the slavery. I mean, think about what that does to you, the person. And we had thousands of these people, probably at least hundreds. But like this was their job, you know, like just out. Like, what do you do for a living? I kidnap people and drag them away to slavery. I think the use of uh, the dead or alive component was more a nod to the spaghetti western than anything else, and it and it it served as a effective transport for this movie to kind of exist. Well, you, well, for the first half, you get to see Schultz just surprise killing people left and right, and you always think they're fucked. That one scene when they go to the saloon, mm -hmm. and he says, "That's a good line too." He's like. Make sure you bring the sheriff, not the marshal. And they bring the sheriff and then he shoots him because that's the guy he's actually looking for. And then he has to talk his way out of it. And you're like, how the fuck are they getting out of this? And then I was like, oh, he actually had a bounty for the sheriff. And it keeps on happening. And then it pays off later. Actually, all right. So when I first saw this movie, I didn't really like it that much because I didn't understand. I was like, Django's not really doing much for most of the movie. You know, and I was sort of like, it's got his name on it. And I thought it was just kind of weird. And then Schultz dies. Uh, you love Schultz right off the bat. But then he dies. And I'm just sort of like, I don't know. They didn't really give Jamie Foxx much to do. That's how I thought about the first time. Now, rewatching it, I'm realizing that what Tarantino did is that he inverted. You've heard, you've all heard of the idea of the magical black man. The magical Negro. The magical Negro trope. Schultz is a magical white man. He's like the Mr. Miyagi. Mm. He's like the uh, the, hmm. the mentor yeah. figure. He's he's like Azim in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but it's a white guy. He's sharing like the the folk tales when he's talking about Broomhilda. Well, and he's sharing his white privilege in a way. And he's sharing his white privilege, and he's <laughs> showing Django how to like no, this is these are the words you need to know. This is how you need to talk. This is how you need to yeah. deal with people. And then it pays off later when Django reaches his lowest point. And he has to out-talk his way out of that Australian thing. He does what Schultz was doing in the past. He manages to yep. talk his way out of a situation where he was fucked. And, and one one thing, the other awesome thing about Schultz is that he did that without ever stepping on Django's agency, which is 
like well, that's unprecedented typical... in his experience, in Django's experience right. in the movie. Well, it's also that's why I'm saying it's like the magical Negro character inverted. It's the magical white man character. Yep. Schultz exists purely to he's like Mr. Miyagi. He's to empower. He's Django. to empower, and then he, you know, like Obi Wan Kenobi, he gets killed off in the you know about three quarters of the way into the movie, and then it's up to. Django to put everything that he's learned into practice and you know wreak his revenge and save his woman it's like you know it's a it's I don't know if that's like a trope of fantasy stories but it seems to be like when you watch Karate Kid like that's what I didn't understand is like Daniel Sun's pretty boring for most of the movie until he's like kicking ass everybody likes Mr. Miyagi Schultz is really the star for the first three quarters of the movie that's yeah. not entirely true. I, I take that back a little bit because there's a slow transference of power where Django is slowly running the show and then Schultz dies and then he has to, to go on. And That's I, was gonna say, I think the costume change too kind of serves that if you notice like when right. when Django sort of the, the, the naive person, he says, pick out whatever you want. And he comes out sort of the clownish outfit. Like little boy blue. Yeah. Yeah, but then as he sort of like develops into like the hardened bounty hunter, now he's all of a sudden dressed as like cool cowboy guy with like the the low slung hat and like the velvet jacket, you know. For anybody who has children, that's an allegory for parenting. That's all right. it is. You yeah. teach your children, you teach them the ways of the world and the hope is that if you're a good parent, you'll die and your your children will go on and do great things in your absence using everything you taught them. Right. Only well, also made it uh, just believable enough to for Django to essentially transition out of a slave mind, mm -hmm. which is what Schultz is essentially was Miyagiing him out of. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, just like even I love that small scene in the haberdashery and like, you know, he picks that like weird top hat. And, and Schultz is like, yeah, it's not working. <laughs> but, but he does it like with like a, with like a kindness. You know, right. what I mean? it's, it's their rapport is tight throughout the whole thing. Well, to go back to what you were talking about, too, with black people having a little more uh, sympathy for white people, even when they don't necessarily deserve it. That one part where Django doesn't want to kill the guy yes. in front of his son and Schultz has to like explain to him. And that's a great bit of dialogue, too, where he's like. This guy could have done anything with his 20s. It doesn't matter that now he has a son and he's living on a farm, you know, and he's trying to make good on it. Throughout all of his 20s, he was killing people and robbing people. He's like, and now he's worth $7,000. So stop pussyfooting around and shoot him. And then Django picks him up and shoots him. <laughs> um, yeah, speak right to that. There's an interesting change there, too, because Schultz in that part is telling Django... You can't be, you know, you, you got to be hard. You can't be too sympathetic. But then later on in the movie, Schultz's inability to play the part of a, like a ruthless slaver starts to fuck them up. Django's actually better at it. Django knows that all he gives up, like, I have to save my wife. You know what I mean? Even if it means I have to play this despicable role, I have to ignore stuff. And Schultz is, you know, uncomfortable with it. He, he. Can't do it. And that's, I don't know, something, that's something I want to, when I saw this movie too, Schultz's ultimate decision to shoot Candy, it's what you want to happen, and it's badass. But doesn't it also strike you as incredibly selfish? Because all he had to do was shake Candy's hand, and then they would walk out and be fine? I mean, I don't know if in the context of this movie, white privilege is the right term. But I, I actually is, have that written down in my notes. But I was it like, is, Schultz, white privilege. Well, no, but I mean, it's a ramification of it. It's also probably one of the reasons that 
Django's able to be a little more ruthless, like you're saying, and comparatively. Right. Like, and I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm almost saying that as, like, in terms of skill set. Right. You know? But Schultz uh, couldn't swallow his pride and just shake the guy's hand. I found that very striking as well, because I, I think that was a part where it felt like a character break to me. Because we'd seen Schultz as this completely ruthless bounty hunter who had done all of these things to survive. I feel like in real life, Schultz would have shook his hand and then came back and killed him later once he had his gun. Right. Watching the movie the first time, that's what I thought would happen. Because I'd actually forgotten because I hadn't seen it in so long. So I was like, I'm sure Schultz is going to go over, going to shake this guy's hand. As soon as he gets outside and around the corner, he's going to come up with a plan and be like, now I'm going to go back and I'm going to kill every one of those so-and-sos. So there was a movie that Denzel did called Flight. Oh, yeah. He was the Love pilot. And I think he had like landed a plane upside down or something and while drunk and high, while on, drunk cocaine, and high yeah. on cocaine. And like he, there was a point in the movie where they're doing all this, like they're planning on doing all these drug tests and he has to lie to save himself. And he, he's sitting in prison. He says, I just couldn't tell one more lie. Like that was just enough. Yeah. Like everyone has their own breaking everybody, point. Everybody had their breaking point. And I think that although Schultz was a like a brutal bounty hunter, it was a code that he lived by. And when he had crossed into that world, it had so disrupted his code, like that he just couldn't go along with it anymore. Like he couldn't shake this man's hand because he found everything about this man morally reprehensible. And it's like this transference, like of him being in this world. He didn't actually really ever want to pay for the slave right. like i don't think i don't think he ever did he didn't want to do that at all because that made him an active participant and throughout all of these scenes with the dogs and the and the flagrant u- use of of nigger all these things the made, fighting the fighting well can we just say in terms of like again like back to like to this the acting and with schultz every time he says the n-word his face actively winces and you could see it. I didn't notice that. You know, it's possible I was projecting onto it, but it, it seemed very real to me. Because one of like, Christoph Waltz's, like, you know, kind of personality traits he infuses in his characters is that, like, obsessive diction that he has. Mm. And it's especially, like, prevalent here, just as it was in, in Glorious Bastards. And so with all of his words, it's always very deliberate and said with a, a certain amount of urgency to it and, and purpose. And that's always, he, there's, like a, there's almost like a sense of hesitancy to it. Gary, I'm curious to get your opinion on the whole house nigger situation. Oh, yeah, yeah we gotta talk, we've got to talk about that. Do you think that Tarantino made it, because I've heard the argument, and let me know if I'm going too far off on a ledge, that black people sold slaves too. Like, do you think that Tarantino kind of took it too far by making Samuel L. Jackson's character the real person in charge of the plantation? No, I mean, it's like, okay, first of all, you, like once you enter into like the the place where you can murder people for bounties and no one says anything and like people get shot and they fly out of the frame of the picture, it's okay that once you're into essentially like this movie's a comic book, right? If you really look at it, it's yeah. basically a comic book. So being that it's a comic book, I don't have a problem with Stephen being a secretly super evil dude. Like that doesn't offend me. I mean, the thing about house slaves, if anything, is that. You know, I think they get a bad name because these people say a lot of times that was the worst job because you were so close to the supervision of the of the slaveholder, so close to the brutality, so close to the rape. In a lot of ways, you're better off if you're just like an anonymous uh, 
like outside worker. Although interestingly enough, it, that depended on where you were. If you're, if you're in the cotton fields where everybody had to work like a machine, that would have been terrible. If you were like Maryland someplace and you were like a carpenter or like a, a blacksmith, that would probably be the best you could do as a slave if you were like a skilled worker. But anyway, but to go back to it, I, I don't have no problem with the Stephen character. I actually think he was a great character. And of course, Samuel L. Jackson, who was a great actor, pulled it off so well. The whole, like where everything about him was fake. Like where Stephen, the idea is that Stephen had carved out his niche in the white man's world, where in front of company, he was fully deferential, yes or no, sir. But then in private, he, he called him Calvin and was sitting there sipping wine and was like, clearly like, but it was like, just the way he held his glass when he's like looking at Calvin, like Calvin's the simp in that, in that <laughs> yeah. scene. And like, and Samuel Jack, like, you know, and, and Steven's character, you know, he has all the power. And Calvin knows it though. But see, but that's sort of yeah. like, that's the interesting thing is like, I believe that's the sort of dynamic that could have been possible. Whereas in order to say like, because face is very important, especially in the South, even now, I mean, there's still honor killings happening all across the American South. Like any, review of murder data will tell you that like the south people will kill you faster it's like saving face is very important in that society so it's i believe that a character like steven could really exist where you could be a smart person and like sort of the manager of the farm as long as you didn't embarrass mr candy and as you saw whenever there's a white man around it was yes or no sir, oh mr candy monsieur candy and like he was a total deferential you know butler where but he done and it, it actually makes sense right he, like the idea is they, they, they mentioned his age he's 76 years old he'd been there for everything he'd been he'd earned his way into that spot over all the years but part of that is he knew to like to stay in his place around the white folks and i think that there were people who managed to carve out a little bit better life by doing that and it's like you know it's a, and it and it's not unprecedented i mean like there's always been slaves who are willing to sell people out so there's always people in that sort of desire to survive who are willing to to get in with the oppressor to to get a little bit ahead so i think the steven character i found him very interesting and somewhat believable because you know there had to be somebody who said screw it if i'm stuck here i'm gonna get the best out of what here is the other thing with the uh, steven character that i thought was interesting is because I do think he's an evil character. Like, they don't do anything to make him sympathetic of, like... I mean, even though, obviously, the circumstances of it, like, this is just how he wanted to create a better life for himself. But somewhere along the way, he completely lost himself and completely turned to the dark side. And I think that the interesting thing, what I get out of it, is when he sees Django come up on the horse, he sees somebody who didn't waste their entire life inside or isn't going to, you know? And he's like, who the fuck does this guy think that he is? You know? And there's this jealousy of either youth or circumstances. And so he's gunning right from the beginning. I was like, I have to figure out what's going on. Cause really what would he care? He could let candy lose $10,000 and whatever, but it specifically annoys him that, Django is showing up and perceived higher than him in his house that he perceives that there's something about that it zeroes in on uh he zeroes in on those characters and the relationship with Broomhilda that's an intense scene when he's interrogating Broomhilda it's actually the most dialogue time Broomhilda gets and acting she gets where she's like then why are you looking scared she's like because you're scary 
And he's like, you know, like he just keeps on pushing her. And the whole time you're like, dude, why do you care? Just, but I don't know. I just saw it as a character that somewhere along the line, just like completely jealous of if I had to live this life, nobody else should be able to have a better life than me sort of thing. What, what do they call that? Um, a hater? Like crab, crab mentality. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, and a hater. <laughs> the ultimate hater. <laughs> Steve is the ultimate hater. There's one other thing that I thought was a weird historical uh, inaccuracy is when they were saying the people were surprised to see a black guy riding a horse. That's not true. They would have seen blacks riding horses all the time. Like it's right. like every, you know, like the first 50 people to win the Kentucky Derby, the first 50 jockeys were slaves or whatever. Like black dudes rode horses, but like you in service of a white man. That's the other thing too. Is like like a lot of times slaves were allowed to travel in service to the white men. There was also like, you could rent out your slaves to people like over distances. Like you would say, you would send your slave to work for somebody 30, 40 miles away and expect them to come back. So like that part was a little weird. It's like, yes, they've seen slaves on horses and they, they, maybe they've never seen a black guy in a fancy outfit like that on a horse. But the mere fact that he's on a horse shouldn't have been so mind blowing. I I think it was just a Tarantino line sort of thing. Tarantino just wanted to get to that line. (laughs) <laughs> of, of, of when samuel jackson first got because it's delivered and it's amazing you know like uh, of steven's reaction to Django when he first comes up is amazing yeah, he definitely kept bringing it back oh look at horse boy which um, i get it because here's the thing about it is steven was right to be suspicious because he like the whole setup was just wrong to him it's sort of interesting right is Django could have played it the way that steven did he could have laid back and been been the loyal servant yes or no sir to everybody and probably would have served him better if you think about it like as far as a trojan horse strategy if he would have come in as nothing more than dr schultz's loyal manservant he probably wouldn't have been allowed in the house though no he probably would have actually like if that's your body man i think they would have let him in he wouldn't have been allowed to sleep in the house Mm. no that's probably true i mean when i think about the practicality of what they did like, I was like, why wouldn't they just send a broker to say, we heard you have a slave that spoke German. What's your price? Why Why the- are you uh, fucking with the revenge uh, fantasy, Boston? Uh, well, you know, that's, that's <laughs> the thing. There, is a plot, there is a plot hole there where Schultz, not a plot hole, but yeah, you're right. It is like, like Schultz is like, oh no, we can't just go and offer to buy Broomhilda. They'll be suspicious. It's like, why not? Why? <laughs> like, 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 yeah, I have, a, I have a guy, he speaks German. He wants a, black, a slave that speaks German. German? Yeah. What's your price? Especially because she's pretty. Like if he just would have showed up and go, I hear you got a pretty German speaking uh, uh, woman up there. Right. I'm willing to pay you, you know, what's she worth? 300? I'll go six. You know what? Because I missed the mother tongue. And the guy probably said, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. The guy's, he's a major plantation. He's got tons and tons of slaves. Like, and the thing is, people sold slaves all the time. Like, because like, if you were a big plantation, you moved them in, you moved them out. You know, like you probably would have just done it. So it was interesting because, like, you—that's a good point. They at no point established why Brunhilde was special to Candy. Yeah, why you wouldn't have just showed up and be like, "I heard you got this girl. She speaks German." Well, I mean, she was special to Candy because she spoke German. Like, like it was almost like as if like he was a collector of objects. This is like a weird, uh, unique one. I don't one. think so. I mean, I mean, maybe, but like not. She was in. It seemed hard. Like Candy didn't want to give up any of his fighting slaves. He really like that was the whole thing. Is that like that would be a, a hard sell? Like the whole right. thing. I don't know. 
I mean, we're splitting hairs. We're doing that of thing course. that people do where it's like with plot holes, but it's a it's a plot point that needs to happen to have the whole fabulous third act. But yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I guess like Django had to be there for some reason uh, is like kind of the thing because Schultz is explained to Django like, oh, you won't just be able. To. It's like, yeah, but you can, motherfucker. Yeah, like, like, be a pal. Schultz seems to not believe in stealing slaves, though. Like he believes in paying. Remember, he paid for Django. And th- but then a yeah, that, that, right. Hmm. Well, you know what's funny? Uh, to go back real quick with him killing Candy too. Another thing is too. It just goes to show. I think part of Schultz's character is that he was just not used to. First of all, like getting into a situation he couldn't get out of like losing and stuff like that. And also like he treats everybody respectfully, even people he's about to kill and obviously doesn't respect. And it was like the lack of respect that candy was showing him. And just that whole dinner scene. And afterwards is I think what really he couldn't abide by. Although it's interesting, right? I think that candy was actually, now I know this is going to sound crazy. I think candy was actually in the right on the handshake thing. I think if you're sitting in Mississippi and you're doing business, you can honestly say, around here, we do a handshake at the end of the job, at the, uh, the business. And I know he was doing it to mess with Schultz, but this is the sort of... Remember, these are the people... <laughs> Come that, on, they, <laughs> no, 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 this is your mountain to tie on. Here's the thing, they were, though. They no. were having duels and beating the hell out of people. Remember, what's his name? There was that uh, the congressman just... who got beat near to death in, like, in the Senate. You know, like, these people from the South, like, I could see Candy wanting to fight you for not shaking his hand as much as you love it's so satisfying but also horrifying that that scene is amazing because it makes you feel several emotions all at once in a split second on one hand it is deeply satisfying to see schultz not shake his hand and instead that gun which is like what do they call that Chekhov's gun because he uses it several times in the movie but he hasn't used it in a while and then he uses it one more time in the third act to just like pop and kill candy. It is deeply satisfying. But then you're like, oh, no. And what's going to happen now? Like this fucks up everything. And I'm still not sure if it's the right move. I mean, it's a badass move and it's a great cinematic move. But uh, yeah. Why not shoot the guy who has the gun? Yeah, shoot the guy who has a gun first. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he could have exactly done it so what he would have done. It wouldn't have been badass for them. It wouldn't give you all those film emotions. That's the thing. It works on a film level to get you into that moment where you go, oh, yes. Oh, shit. You know what I mean? Like, Well, and also I think this type of movie, it being historical revisionism, it being uh, spaghetti western, it being a revenge, and it being very much a fantasy. The the other thing that's weird, too, and actually I'm surprised we didn't even talk about this, but the, Django is an entire series in Italy of uh, 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 the, the name. There, there was Django, and Django Rides Again, and Django, like, it was already a character, and it was very loosely based, but the original character... I've actually only I saw it a long time ago and I barely remember. It's it, from the 60s. It's from the 60s. It was at the height of like the spaghetti western sort of thing. And uh, it's about a uh, I think he's a Union soldier on like the Mexican-American border. And the whole thing is he's trying to help a uh, mixed race prostitute escape from somewhere and has to kill people and uh, uh, be badass. But yeah, the. 
if we're going to talk a little bit about this movie as an ode to like spaghetti westerns with uh, the the music scoring, well, we can cut it out. Before you get to that, though, I wanted to just finish the point and say that like because of all of these like constructs with this movie and the point of this movie, the plot holes are honestly beside the point because the because right. the basic structure works and it's all oriented towards satisfying the fantasy. The entire plot's directed for the viewer more than anything else in the movie right. more like for the person ex- watching the movie um even more than like a regular movie because the majority of movies serve or hope to serve a very tight plot mechanic where because of like tarantino's homage territory and just love of like the entertaining aspects of his films he's almost writing um sketches that tie together perfectly even though Tarantino has gotten critical acclaim, and I think he might have won an Academy Award somewhere for like probably for editing at least once. He won um, one for uh, Django. I think he won for best original screenplay. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. But the thing about Tarantino that's that's interesting is that he he you're right. He is he is directing and writing his movies not to impress critics and not really to get Academy Awards. Like even that scene we were just talking about with the there's no logical reason. For Schultz to shoot candy, other than it is an exciting and satisfying scene for the viewer. It's a cathartic moment. So let me throw this out at you as a reason, maybe to try and close the plot hole a little bit as I'm thinking through this. Because Schultz holds himself up as a lawman, and he's really dedicated to that code. Yeah. And he really doesn't kill anybody outside of his job throughout the movie right outside of duty outside of duty he doesn't really do that that was the first time that he killed somebody outside of his duty and maybe he thought like i know i'm gonna die and i'd probably deserve to die but i'm gonna have to do this and i think that like almost like well you know what's funny too with the moment before that too where uh, what's her name is playing the harp and she keeps playing Beethoven and you can't stop thinking about the guy getting torn apart by dogs. I kind of realize this at the moment, too. It's almost like he's like, you know what? I think I'm tired of this. Uh, I'm tired of this world. It's almost like a suicide at that point. Like, yeah, he's kind of like like he is he's done with existing in the world where there's this much injustice and whatnot and decides he, to go out doing something extremely satisfying. And the sister's playing Beethoven who is a German composer and yep. that's just reminding him too much of home yep. and how far he's come or how far he's divulged into this place. And he's thinking about the dogs mm-hmm. and he's like, look, I'm just going to kill this guy. It's, it's, it's suicide by cop. Yep. I yeah. guess I'm going to kill this guy and just be done with it. And then I feel like I've brought Django far enough along where he can probably take care of himself, which is why it works so perfect. Like, I mean, Again, like it's it's oriented toward that that fantasy, but that's that is that's a grounded it's, reason though. It's a well, you know what's funny? You know what it reminds me of? I think I might have brought it up earlier too. If we're talking about the whole mentor and other classic movie mentors, it's uh, it's the scene in the original Star Wars with Obi Wan Kenobi uh, allowing himself to be killed to create a distraction for Luke Skywalker and President. Uh, yeah, there's probably a better way to get out of it, but it makes it makes sense. And it's like the idea of the mentor just sort of like, I'm done. Time for you to take over. You know, I would have felt better about it if Schultz would have died in a more logical, if less exciting way. Like if he would have if they would have shot their way out of it and he just would have 
one of the guards would have got him on the way out of the door or something, I would have felt better about it. Because, you know, if he would have made a more calculated decision. It, but that's one of that's one of my hangups with lots of movies. I don't like when characters do something that doesn't make sense for them. I mean, it would have been pretty easy to do, although maybe it would have set the, the pacing off. But like if he could have taken out Candy and the uh, the shotgun guy and then immediately gotten taken out by some other guy in another room. Every time I watch the movie, I'm just like part of me. You're like Schultz, you badass and then you're like you fucking dumbass like you think both those things in your head at the same time is dumbass and that's the most badass thing i've ever seen but it also creates that experience of the white privilege thing we were talking about the idea that it makes sense that schultz who had never been a slave can only handle so much whereas in the tenacity of django who right. has suffered worse things than Schultz could ever have dreamt of, was able to grin and bear it and just do it because he knew what the cause was and that he's been through much worse. That's a good point, too, because it also speaks to more like Schultz's, you know, he was a dentist. He was obviously at some time fairly upper class. Well, like of course, it goes to his addiction. Of, he's been viewing and seeing a lot of this world. He doesn't like it. Yeah, to like go into the yeah the suicide concept of that or sacrifice side of it that he just uh, didn't realize how bad the world could be. Because I think it's also implied that Schultz was kind of like all over America, but not really in the South, like kind of like traveling all over. Yeah, I think because I think there's even a line at one point Django says something like that, like he's like a nomad, right? Because he's t Django's talking to Candy and he says your guy looks a little. Uh, green around the gills for somebody who wants to get into slave fighting and Django's like oh he's just not used to he's not used to Americans and seeing people get ripped apart by uh, dogs which is true for the character he's actually not lying there well Django's I, lines when Candy would test him were always a double edged sword which is really awesome throughout watching throughout the movie there was always like an insult toward Candy but it was underhanded enough to play as not one right this movie, despite its critics, was pretty successful. I think that it was a $100 million budget. It made about $450 million wow. in the United States. So it was, I think the, the criticisms that it, that it has, the, or the contractors were relatively small in comparison. It, it's like 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. People tend to, tend to really like this movie. But I wonder, in a, a European or were to do a movie about slavery, would they be championing that movie the way we champion Holocaust films? Like, is the, is the controversy around this movie, if a person from another country would had done it for another audience, could there be a Schindler's List in the United States or in another country that focused on slavery and get the accolades that Schindler's List got? Are, are you tracking what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I am. I actually think I... I'm talking out of my ass here. I, it would be kind of interesting to look up. But uh, I think there are actually specifically laws. Like Germany would never do an Indiana Jones. Because I think there are specific laws in Germany now that if you depict Nazis, you have to depict them 100% accurately. And that's to crack down on the idea of doing any sort of revisionism. So even if you're portraying Nazis as bad guys in Germany... You And probably a lot of, and actually I think the Europeans in general are probably squeamish with it. This is just my, you know, if anybody knows of any good 
European movies where Nazi like a badass like action movie where Nazis are the bad guys. I don't think it really exists. And I think specifically in Germany, like there's only been a couple of movies about Adolf Hitler in Germany. And one of the things about them is they have to have like a government board go over and like look over it. This so, is my memory. So, so I say this because Steve McQueen did 12 Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I think that, and, and he's gone on the record and said something like this. The reason why 12 Years a Slave is so good is because Steve McQueen is British. And he can really critique America from the outside looking in. It would really be fascinating. But why wouldn't, isn't it normal in most other circumstances where you're looking at successful critique, the outsider's perspective normally is like one of the more distant ones. So why would that be more effective? Because he, he can be completely honest about what America is and not fear American retribution. That's why I would wonder if the Germans did an American slave movie, how brutal and what would it look like? You know, like, because an American did Schindler's List. Right. And they took the gloves off. Right. Do you know what I mean? But if a German were to do an American slave movie, what would that? Because I bet like they could really intensely get into the brutality of it and not feel any moral reason to stop showing in what it actually looked like. But isn't, it, isn't your answer already 12 Years a Slave? Yes. But 12 Years a Slave was a movie by a British director and made for U.S. audience. It was also based on a book in like the from like the actual memoir of a person who was captured in New York and dragged into slavery, who like managed to escape. But like even that is you kind of have to edit. And I, but I wonder if some of that's for commercial purposes. It's like, does anyone really want to go see a movie where it's like an hour of flayed skin and torture? I mean, that's not really like. The Passion of the Christ? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's plenty of horror examples, but yeah, that's... I was going to say, hell, that's like how every Hellraiser movie. <laughs> but people killed the Passion of the Christ. You know, they talked about how that was nothing but like an anti-Semitic... Uh, yeah, but it was also it was also the most successful independent movie of all time. So like, you know... Well, if you throw Jesus in it, that's always... That already gets you started. It's kind of like... I don't know if you guys know this joke, but like there's a... there You know, like Showtime at the Apollo, they have Amateur Night. Like there's this, there's the idea that if you sing a gospel song, they won't boo you off the stage, no matter what, <laughs> no, no matter how bad you are. Even if you start out bad and you move to a gospel song, then they have to stop booing. Yeah, they, 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 yeah, they will, they will stop booing if you throw a couple of Jesuses in. So it's like well, cheating to say, oh, you know, the Passion of the Christ is a big hit. Well, you know, it does go to um, commercialism, though, because I mean. There is like the French e- extreme uh, subgenre of horror that primarily was taking place in the aughts that, you know, has movies like Martyrs. That's a movie I'm, I still haven't seen. And I'm, I, I want to, but I'm like kind of hesitant because it's so goddamn brutal and it's revered in that yeah. scene. But it's a very specific scene and subgenre that a movie that would be attempting to address either slavery or the Holocaust, those are normally movies that are intended for, you know, every adult to see in terms of like its audience and why it's necessary to experience. I think that's true. And to Gary's point, 12 Years a Slave was a movie about Solomon Northup. And I read the book and it was fairly accurate, like with very few deviations. The only way the movie deviated was the fact that the primary character, Solomon, got more help from white people 
than the movie actually let on, right? The white person who ended up being Brad Pitt's character actually wrote letter after letter after letter after letter to people up north till somebody finally came and got him. He actually, in the book, he actually was like, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to go up north and get people, get somebody right now for you. And before he was able to take off, they came and got him. But for the, for the most part, the brutality and everything that passed through the book was relatively accurate. And that was also Solomon's perspective. And Solomon was also a, a violinist and he did some other things. So he wouldn't have bared a lot of the brunt of, of the field hand because he was a very unique person within this. Because he was... Well, he was skilled. Like he Mark, was skilled. And he, was saying he, was, like, he yeah. was skilled and he was literate. Right. Um, so, and he, he was, he was a, a musician. He was able to be used. He was able to be used in a, in a way that was beneficial to him considering the circumstances. Um, right. but a true unflinching, like, who was the guy who did Batman? Which one? The one with Christian Bale. Who was the director? Christopher Chris, Nolan. Christopher he's Nolan. British too. Am I right about that? Yeah. So, and he said that in order to do Batman correctly, because he was so dark, Americans would never be honest enough to do a correct Batman. That's a very stupid... Oh, God damn it. I mean, um, I might take this part out, but like Christopher Nolan, one, needs to learn how to write an actor. Two, Batman was written in America, so Christopher Nolan shut the fuck up. Two, well, like three, like it's just a dumb fucking thing to say. But he, but he, said, he said that Americans have trouble capturing their own darkness. I and guess it, so, except for the fact that the character he's portraying was fucking written by right, Americans why would you wanna, for like, why would you even want to try like, to capture like, like 90 I need to, years? I need to truly capture the me? darkness of this American character properly. You Americans, even though you created it, I mean, haven't whether, been able whether to do he it. intended to or not, like Christopher Nolan fucking gave birth to annoying man boys who like think, ugh, it's just fucking annoying. Listen, like America has tons of great creative output that is abysmally dark and interesting and authentic and honest and valuable. Like, I think what you're, you know, you can't just start, like, I think what you're specifically talking to, which is important and, and, and interesting, is reckoning with your own history. No matter right. what it is, it's always harder. It's always easier to look at someone else's history. And because you don't have skin in the game, it's you, you can assess it seemingly with more honesty. So I, I mean, I think that Americans have done extremely dark movies. I don't think yeah. they've done extremely dark movies about their own. And that's to your point, their own history. Like I, I don't think they've ever properly, they've never, I haven't seen a movie that's properly dealt with the, the genocides of native Americans. No. I just don't. And, well, and I, and, and, but I think part of that reason is because movies weren't made by anyone who experienced them. It's almost something that's so distant. I, but I put, I, I, I don't know, man. That's just. There's been some really dark Vietnam movies. I think yeah. some of it is you just have to find someone who has like, the juice to get the movie made and who wants to do it. That's like, that's the thing. It's gotta be the two things. It's gotta be someone who can get it made and someone who wants to make it. People write also what they know. Like no one who experienced or who, who partook in, experienced or witnessed the genocide of Native Americans were able to make movies because the technology wasn't out yet. And like, which makes sense why you have like Vietnam movies, like, you know, why the 20th century is is primarily covered in, in film. You know, what? Yeah. that's a good point. Like, probably the stance. darkest Vietnam movies are made by Vietnam veterans, right? Like people who right. are like. I've actually been there and we're like, I'm writing this movie 
about like the crap that I saw myself when I was 19. You know what? I That's just bullshit, Jay. All kind of movies are written about the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. People write about the fantasies that they have about their perceived uh, Those are ancestors. more period pieces, though. I think... But, um, but what would be the difference period between... Period pieces are so rarely would, so, would, so, would an Indiana, uh, so would an Indian genocide piece be a period piece, but it would also be honest. No, 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 no. But I'm talking about more like the genre of movie. Like, it's like... Um, I feel like often period pieces are very they're primarily more for entertainment in the in the like in the fetishization of that time actually i was more, about to say they're more for awards they're really not like oh well the, that's another what was good the last period because that's the thing period pieces generally are go for awards and then like you know guys in capes punching each other is like what we're currently in for like getting asses in the seats and selling you know selling tickets but my point is is that of the movies you know, slave movies obviously like are gonna uh, trump a lot of this. <laughs> no, because I think of I think of Spartan, and I think of like any movie written about ancient Rome. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like the yeah, idea that people really own... dark. They're not dark movies. That's kind of <laughs> the, the point. The point I'm making though. They murdered his whole family. No, 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 no. There's like, a difference, to, like, dude. Seriously, though. To, like, like, commit a murder? I mean, that's pretty rough. <laughs> like, people, like, gathered around in entertainment to see a movie like Gladiator or uh, the, the 300 or, like, these ty- or, like fucking Game of Thrones. It's candy. You want to talk about, like, unflinching movies, like, dark movies that take its subject matter, like, actually very seriously. And, like, 12 Years a Slave is a good example but there's other movies that Americans have made that are also very dark and unflinching and uncomfortable. The thing is, is that they're just they're not popular. I was about to say, generally, American cinema, we don't like to make shit that isn't popular. And we do make those movies, but we make them with that purpose, like, this is going to be unflinching and maybe it'll win some awards. But they're not like, that's kind of the sad thing. We don't make them as often and we tend to not throw the huge budgets at them. Well, that's true. No, most of the ones I'm talking about are independent. This goes to one of my favorite lines from a movie I've never even seen, but I've heard it in so many times on like a rap album I love, which is like the scene from uh, Mo' Better Blues where the character is complaining, goes, people don't even come out to support us to see the music we make. And the guy, and then like the Wesley Snipes character comes in and he goes, that's because you grandiose motherfuckers don't make the shit that people want to hear. If you make the shit that people want right. to hear and the people will come out and see it. So that's what it comes down to somewhat is like, there are people making all of these sad, dark movies, but like, you know, that's not what you're going to run down to the AMC to see. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, you know, I think it, it matters who in the movie is suffering. There's that African proverb until lions have historians, hunters will always be heroes. So <laughs> that's a great line. Uh, so it, I think it depends on who's suffering. If it's George Washington crossing the Delaware and people are fucking freezing their ass off and they're doing an accurate depiction of that. Well, that makes people feel good about being an American. But 12 Years Slave won an award. I was going to say, when was the last time they made a movie about George Washington? I don't know the Mel Gibson movie about the Revolutionary War. Uh, that didn't have George Washington in it. That was like a. And fake, then there was that a, was like that was like Mel Gibson doing Braveheart too. What was that? Yeah, it was Hamilton. Hamilton's the closest thing. But Twelve Years a Slave won the yes, Academy. Yes, it did. It did. Right. But Twelve Years a Slave to date, to me, is the most unflinching movie about slavery that no, I've ever I know. Seen. Yeah, you said um, that. But in terms of going into the true depths in the horrors of slavery, I think it barely scratched the surface. So and maybe there's just not an appetite for that. Like you said, maybe. But I think Schindler's List was pretty fucking crazy. That was pretty intense. 
And it was three hours of unflinching darkness. And people watched it. The whole point of it was that, like there was a list, like Schindler saved some people. Like if it was not Schindler's list, if it was just like, you know. Depressing Holocaust. Yeah, if it was just name. like a week at Auschwitz, that wouldn't have been much of a movie. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. If it were just would have been like, you know, uh, just like a day in the life of the of an Auschwitz guard. I mean, like you would have left that movie and be like, this is completely unredeeming and horrible. But right. at least Schindler saved all those people. The other interesting thing about what we're talking about, too, is you've got to look at also codes and rating systems because, you know, Ralph, you're a big horror obsessive. There was like codes along showing certain types of gore right. uh, up until certain times. And now pretty much anything goes, especially with streaming services like ratings have especially stopped uh, mattering as much, even with TV. Oh, yeah. No. Um, but I feel that. Of all like the categories of art that is put out and what might win, I was thinking like what would be the type of art that has license to be the most unflinching at all times. It's probably literature because, you know, when you guys are talking about like World War II and stuff with Schindler's List, like I was thinking of Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, who's also American and revered in the literary circles. It's a very brutal book uh, and it spans the scope of experience during that time. Uh, in all matters of ways, whether you ask for them or not. And, you know, I think in terms of, I think literature might have just the most opportunity to be as as honest as, as what you're asking about. I echo that 100%, because like, I, th that's what I'm saying, that book, The Half Has Ever Been Told, he could write in detail about these detailed industrial style beating. He even called it, he named it, he goes, he called it The Whipping Machine which was like the way that they were able to extract this labor out of people at, at the, at the edge of a whip. And you could describe these brutal beatings in a way that it's uncomfortable to read, but like it would be even worse to see. Recently, there was a, a celebrity couple that got married at a, at a former plantation, an old plantation, and they got some slack for it and they had to apologize or whatever. But why is it that nobody would ever get married at Auschwitz? Like, is it that because they don't, people don't fully understand the brutality that happened on a plantation? And then that goes to my point about the movies and the way we depict it. Do you know what I mean? Nobody would ever be like, oh, I'm just totally getting married at one of the concentration camps because I like the backdrop. Notice because there's no, the, Clint Smith just wrote a book uh, called How the Words Passengers in the Atlantic Cover Story. Uh, and he talks a little bit about it as, there has been such a myth making about the South and there's been so many lies told that people, it's actually the majority of Americans are misinformed. You know, there's people who believe in the idea of the kindly slaveholder, which is like the thing about being like a friendly pimp. You know, remember there's like the Saturday Night Live skit where there was like the joke about the friendly pimp? Because that's basically what we're talking about. The idea that you forcefully held people in bondage, but you weren't so bad about it. I mean, it just doesn't really work. Well, I wonder. I was going to ask. I wonder if the whole idea of Southern hospitality came about as a way for like white people to cope with the atrocities they were doing. Well, if we do it nicely, yeah. meaning just in terms of not that the the Southern if the Southern people did did anything nicely, but my point is is that whole obsession with etiquette and the handshake. Right. That uh, Candy had, you know, all of that. I wonder, because that grew a, alongside slavery. 
Isn't What's that it? part of like the whole honor culture thing? It's like the same thing as like any of the places where, like, you know how like they say like there's the famous Pashtun Wali, how like if you go to a Pashtun and ask for shelter, they have to give it to you. But those people also kill you dead if you insult them, not unlike the people in the American South, you know? So it's like, I've noticed this, like a lot of times when people are most courteous, they're also most violent. Like I grew up, as I said, right. in Indiana, well, yeah. and people are were very courteous as I grew up. Is as we had one of the highest murder rates in America, but people would always greet you as you passed them in the street and such. It was actually jarring to me to move to New York and people, and I think New Yorkers are very friendly on average, but they did not have like the same sort of level of almost performative courtesy that I grew up with. To go back with why doesn't anybody get married at Auschwitz? This is going way back. If you back it up to an hour ago in the discussion, I said at one point with why is it so easy to make a movie reckoning with what the Nazis did and not so much with uh, uh, slavery. And I think it's because slavery was such an ingrained part, like people created an entire ec economy from it. Auschwitz and the Holocaust is almost like a, seems to be like a weird aberration, like just a, a, a country collectively losing its mind and it was like kind of immediately dealt with. Unfortunately, I think you have a lot of misguided white white people, especially in the South and whatnot. They want to whitewash all the negative aspects at slavery and just look at the pretty buildings. There weren't any pretty built. Nobody got married at Auschwitz. You know what I mean? There were no pretty buildings. It was just death. But I think for a lot of people, a lot of people in the South, uh, white people in the South, it represents like, a, oh, wasn't it? This looks nice, this architecture. And uh, yeah, it's not like, I'm not excusing it. I think it's horrible. It's like a huge blind spot that you're willing to put blinders on so that you can still enjoy this, uh, 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 this, this aspect of, uh, of history. And, you know, and um, to give them a little bit of an excuse, it's a manufactured blind spot. The average American person has been flat out lied to on purpose to put you in that right. position. You know, it's not it's not by accident that they've written the textbooks where sort of wishy-washy about what was happening. You know, I saw they they surveyed and something like 85 percent of uh, high school students don't think that the Civil War was about slavery, despite the fact that the people who started the Civil War said it was about slavery. Like they literally wrote it down like we're doing the this cornerstone speech. Like there's tons of the, like there's a cornerstone speech. There's the articles of secession. They could not have been more clear about what this was about, but somehow less than 200 years later, like people have propagandists essentially have managed to sow doubt. So a lot of those people just don't even know that they've been bamboozled and, you know, led astray. And actually, you know what? I have to tell you a funny story about going to a plantation. Um, my in-laws took me to South Carolina a few years ago and we took a plantation tour and it was actually, you know, I didn't want to go. But it was actually instructive. For one thing, I'd never been bit by so many mosquitoes in my life, which made me think about the poor slaves out there just being eaten alive while working in like the uh, the rice fields of South Carolina. And the other thing is we took a plantation, like the big house tour, and the, the guide, a white person, goes, and then during the Civil War, they burned down the original one. And this is a remake. And these ladies sigh and says, oh. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I wish they were inside it when they burned it down. Every single <laughs> one of these bastards should have died. But it's but, you know, anyway, like sorry for that tangent. But the truth of the matter is, like, I feel bad for how much they basically the propagandists, the daughters of, the you know, the Confederacy. Um, all stuff, they have BS the entire American 
people essentially they they basically won the information war right they've got people confused about the simplest thing in the world they've made it where the smart person thinks that only dumb people think that the war was about what it was about i mean what a trick right yeah well gary ralph thank you very much for being on and discussing django i uh i think we did it boston take us out Again, drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. And if you feel so inclined, subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, folks. I'm curious what makes you so curious. Stay curious. Love you, Tayo. Love you, Tayo.